Indeed, praise the Lord. And good morning, everyone. My name is Siabulela Nana. It is my privilege to be with you this morning. It's good to be back and uh, fellowship with you. But also, thank you so much, Maria, and be able to share the word. Turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 8. We read from verses 1 through to verses 18. And uh, you'll be pleased to know that I'm not planning to read all those verses. We'll be making our way through them, but I won't be reading all of them. I will only read verses 1, which captures the entire theme of the chapter. We'll be making our way through the chapter. Let's read together. All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. They told Ezra to bring out the book of the law of Moses. And I like that qualification which the Lord had commanded Israel. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we ask you to open our eyes that we may be able to see, to see you and see what it is that you are calling us to. We ask you to open our ears that we may be able to hear you. As Samuel said, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. We ask you to open our minds that we'll be able to comprehend and understand. But we ask you, Lord, to open our hearts that we'll be able to obey you. In Jesus' name, amen. As we begin this morning, I want to invite you to come with me in your imagination to imagine in your mind a young couple coming out of hospital, beaming with smile. They have just had a child, and they both are excited. He is proud that he is the father for the first time, they go home and their family welcomes them with celebration and excitement. We also join them as they celebrate for the safe arrival of the child. But while we celebrate the safe arrival of the child, we are also aware that they are beginning another chapter in their lives. They've come to an end of one chapter of her carrying the baby and the baby has finally been born and born well. But while the baby has been born, that chapter is is over and done with. A new chapter begins. They now have to learn what it is to be a parent. When my son was born, the doctor told us that everything is fine. She can now come with you. I said, no, no, no. She can stay as long as she wants. But when my daughter was born, I couldn't wait for us to go home. 
and, and I realized that there goes our sleep. <laughs> and that's where we are, we have arrived. That's the stage we've reached now in the book of Nehemiah. We've been on chapter one where we joined Nehemiah heartbroken and devastated, having received the news, the news about the state of Jerusalem, the condition of Jerusalem, and how the people of Jerusalem feeling vulnerable and exposed because the walls have been bent down with fire. And he cries out to God. He prays again and again in chapter 1. In chapter 2, he gathers around himself, his brothers. He shares with them the news about the state of Jerusalem. They strategize together about what to do in order to restore Jerusalem. In chapter 3, they begin to build the walls. In chapter 4, they encounter the opposition. The opposition that seeks to undermine them and to ridicule them. They say, what do these feeble Jews think they are doing? They say, even a little fox will bring those walls down. They were trying to undermine them and ridicule them. When they realized that that didn't work, they threatened them with physical attack. And again, when they realized that didn't work, they misrepresented them. They said, Nehemiah is building these walls in order to set himself up as a king. And they knew how dangerous that statement was. But none of those deterred them from building the wall. In chapter 5, they experience another form of enemy. In chapter 4, it's the enemy out, looking at them, trying to undermine them. In chapter 5, they have the enemy within as they now are divided among themselves, those who have financial muscle among the, the church member, they, the members, they seem to take advantage of those who are poor among themselves. And so the whole entire chapter, no brick is laid until the squabble is resolved. If you read the book of Nehemiah, you, would, you can't help but pick up the, 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 the echoes of Acts chapter, the early chapters of the Acts. As they are coming out of this disgrace, trying to rebuild, they face opposition. Similar to the early church, as the Holy Spirit moves in power, they face opposition and they respond to opposition through prayer. But in chapter 4 and 5 of Acts, they begin to experience the enemy from within. Deception and theft that takes place within the church. Now in chapter 6 and 7, the walls are done and dusted. They've been finished and completed. And so here we are in chapter 8. We realize that while everything is over, finished, done, and dusted, but it is another beginning, another start for the people of God. 
chapter 8 helps us to understand the, the message of the book of Nehemiah. That the message of the book of Nehemiah is about the people of God. Far more it is about the walls of Jerusalem. That's what chapter 8 of Nehemiah teaches us. It is about the people of God. The walls have been reconstructed. But the people of God need now to be reinstructed into the law of God. That's what chapter 8 teaches us. In verses 1 of chapter 8, we are told that the people were together. They assembled as one man. That's what the NIV says. They were together. And in, from that unity, they cried out with one voice. They asked Ezra to bring out the book. Bring us the book. It is a remarkable thing. We're not told what really triggered them to have this hunger for the word of God. We're not sure what happened. What caused them to ask for Ezra to come and teach them the word of God. Some commentators think that it's probably they were asking, they were thinking about how can we discover the people we were meant to be? How can we discover the God we were meant to worship? So they realized that the only way for us to discover both the people we were meant to be and the God we were meant to worship is by when Ezra, the priest, come before us open the book, and read it to us. This is very crucial for us today as a church. Why would they want to rediscover the people they were meant to be? Remember that they were in exile for years. They were strangers in a strange land. They couldn't do the things that distinguish them from the rest of the world. In Psalm 137, we are told that those who kept them asked them to sing the songs of Zion. And they said to, to themselves, how can we sing the songs of God in a foreign land? And if we do that, may God take the voices out of our mouths. So they could not do the things that reminds them who they were. They have lost their true identity. Even though now they are back, it doesn't mean that they, they have discovered everything that makes who they are. They are still on their search to discover the people they were meant to be and the God they were meant to worship. And this chapter tells us that the people of God are the people of the book. As they seek to discover who they are, the people they were meant to be, and the God they were meant to worship, as Ezra began to open this book for them, we discover that the people of God 
are the people of the book. Something remarkable that we must notice here is that it was not the preacher who got up and decided to preach over them. But rather it was the congregation that asked to be taught the word of God. They were gathered together and they asked Ezra to bring the book. Verses 2, we, we discover that Ezra did his job. He brought the law of God. He brought it before the assembly. In verses 3, we are told that Ezra got up. There was a wooden platform that was built. It was high enough so that they could see him and hear him. And we are told in verses 3 that Ezra read the book aloud from daybreak till noon. It must have been the longest sermon. But interestingly enough, verses 3 doesn't end there. It says, all people listened attentively as Ezra was reading the book of the law. And in verses 18, you, you begin to get the sense that Ezra did not just read this book one day. He read it day after day. And as he read it day after day, there is also an emphasis that comes with it. An emphasis on understanding. Verses 7 and 8, it tells us that the Levites instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Somehow you get the sense that while Ezra was standing up, reading aloud, there were also small groups that came about as the Levites were going amongst the people trying to explain and make them understand what Ezra was reading. So a group of people will gather around a Levite in order for them to explain and make them understand. So there were small groups that were formed in order to make the book clear and more understandable to people. And they use the word there clear as if to suggest that they had to repeat what Ezra was reading. And this is one of the areas that we as a church like to emphasize. We, we love Sundays. Sunday is a day for public worship. It's a day for the people of God to come together to celebrate, to reflect on God's goodness and faithfulness. And we do that together. But we realize that Sunday is not enough to answer all your questions about God. And so small groups becomes crucial to help you understand some of the things that were said on Sunday. Sometimes we stand here as preachers 
We say all kind of words, assuming that everyone understands them and everyone agrees with us in the way in which we say those words. We speak of the word gospel. I'm assuming that you know what it means and you agree with me in the way in which I understand it. Until the two of us have a conversation. He kept using the word gospel. What did he mean when he said that word? That's what you ask in your life group leader. Oh, is that what he meant? I thought he meant this. And I think that's what was happening here. And that's what we try and do in the life groups. To break down what was said on Sunday. And make it more clear. And make it more applicable. And make it more understandable. And chewable to each and everyone's level. So here in this context of Nehemiah, there were those who were closer to him and they could hear him clear. But there were those who were far from him and they could not hear him clear. But thank God that the Levites were there. The Levites were there to help them understand. I can remember we had a conference in South Africa called SACLA. South African Christian leadership. One of the speakers there was Bruce Wilkinson. And uh, in his message, he spoke and he left. In the mo- um, as soon as he finished preaching, in fact, they escorted him through the door to catch his flight. He was that big and famous. He had to go and, and preach elsewhere. But in the evening of that day, there were things that Bruce Wilkinson said that didn't sit well with the other group of the people in the conference. And what was so beautiful was to see Michael Cassidy, who was the chairperson of the conference, getting up to explain the things that Bruce was saying. Because people approach Michael and vent their concerns about the things Bruce said Because he's an American, he's speaking in the context of Africa, and he touched on AIDS, and he made quite bad general statements about HIV, and he became politically incorrect. But what was beautiful was to see another leader within the context of Africa, understanding the man who spoke, and understanding the context in which he preached, explaining. And you could see the conference again settling and able to, to move forward. Why am I telling you that story? I'm telling you that story because it's always important to have other leaders around a leader because they help in times like that. And that's why life groups leaders are crucial to us. Now by this time, there is a sense of spiritual renewal and spiritual restoration taking place among the people of God in Jerusalem. There is a revival of the word of God taking place in Jerusalem. People are being renewed spiritually. As you read again this chapter, you can't help but see another emphasis on this little word called called all. In verses 1, we are told all the people assembled. Verses 2, all who were able to understand. Verses 3, all listened attentively. Verses 5, all the people could see, all stood up. Verses 6, all lifted 
their hands. Now, it's worth pausing here for a moment and reflect that the people were not worshipping the Bible. They were not worshipping the book, but they were worshipping the God of the Bible. Because the book was now telling them about the God whom they were meant to worship. And as Ezra was reading it, they were becoming aware, more and more aware of the God they belonged to. And they begin to lift up their hands in worship to God. And this to us too, as the people of God, we can at times be accused that we worship the Bible. No, we worship God who spoke. And because God spoke, we have a high view of his word. And the Bible is his word. And we have a high view of it. So what you can't help but notice here is that the people of God are the people of the book and all people of God. What about us? What about us, the New Testament people of God? Well, us too, the New Testament people of God, are the people of the book. Jesus, in his prayer, recorded in John 17. A beautiful prayer. Somebody said, when we read that prayer, we have a privilege of coming and listening to the Son talking to the Father. We have a privilege of joining a private conversation between the Father and the Son. And it's a beautiful conversation. He prays for himself he prays for his disciples who were there with him. And then he prays for those who will be saved through their message. I'm always fascinated by that. And he says that they too will be one. In other words, Jesus wanted us to be one with his immediate disciples. There were his immediate disciples who were following him. And then he, he says, through the message of these disciples, there will be others who will be saved. My prayer is that those who will be saved through the message of these will be one. But something fascinating that he prays for, for us there, he says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them. Set them apart by the truth. Your word is truth. This tells us something about Jesus, about the nature of Jesus. How much does he value truth? But also, it tells us something about Jesus, about the vision he had for his church about the vision Jesus had for you and I, that we will be people characterized by the truth. We will be people set apart from the world in which we live by being people of truth. If we value his word, 
We live in a society that is described as post-truth culture or fake news. But Jesus prayed that you and I we will be people of the truth. Peter, in his first letter, as he speaks to these young believers, he spoke of them as those who are born again by the living word and enduring word of God. So the New Testament people of God are the people of the book. We've been born again by the living word. The living word. And enduring word of God. In the book of Acts, Luke describes that first Christian church that was born on the day of Pentecost. He tells us that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So not only the Old Testament people of God who are the people of the book, but us too are the people of the book. And then in one of many articles of the Anglican Church, they describe the church so beautifully in these words. They says, the visible church of Christ is the congregation of faithful men and women in which the pure word of God is preached. The church is made up of faithful men and women in which the word of God is preached. The pure word of God is preached. That's the description of you and I as the people of God. We are people under the word of God. So let's pause and reflect. What are we learning here as we see the hunger of these people calling out Ezra to read the book for them? Well, the first thing that we see is that the word of God is key and central to our spiritual growth and spiritual renewal. The word of God is key and central to yours and my spiritual growth and spiritual renewal. Peter says it is a living word. And Paul says we are to be renewed our minds by meditating on the word of God. And so if that word of God is key and central to our spiritual renewal and spiritual growth, it means we need to be taking it in to be receiving it. The question then is, how often do we do that? How often do we take time and allow the word of God to come into us? How often do we sit down with the Bible open before us? Don Carson writes beautifully, he says, the first place to begin in trying to understand what Christianity is and who Jesus is is to start again to read the Bible. Those words strike me. 
The first place to begin in trying to understand Christianity. In other words, in trying to understand your faith. If you want to understand your faith. But not only your faith, but who Jesus is. Is to begin to read the Bible. In John 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And if you read that word, you will understand that it takes us back to Exodus. To the journey of the people of God as they were traveling through the wilderness. They would come to Moses again and again and ask for bread. And Moses will pray to God and God will provide bread. But now Jesus is saying, he doesn't only provide it for our physical hunger, but he himself he is the bread of life. And then he goes on to say, he says, who, 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 those who eat will not be hungry and they will not, they will not be thirsty again. It is the bread that satisfies, but also that transforms. But even more so, it sustains us. Never be thirsty. Never go hungry again. That's sustaining. When we draw in who Jesus is, we discover who he is. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Seven times in the Gospel of John, Jesus tells us who he is. And if we want to discover him, we must come back to the Bible. One of the criticisms of our time, even though we have so much resources at our disposal, is biblical illiteracy. We don't know the Bible as we should. And I was thinking about it, that the people who raised me in the faith are people who never had any theological training. But they had something that Those of us who claim to have theological training, we don't have. They were godly people. They were godly people. They were people who live their lives in pursuit of God. And they didn't tell you, but you saw it in them. Their preaching was full of fire and power. It was, it spoke to the heart. So we need the revival. The revival and the renewal and the hunger for the word of God. Like these people. We need it for ourselves. To come around the word of God with expectant hearts. At home I have a couple of um, what you call study Bibles. And I must say, I don't use them as I should I use them. But from time to time, as I come from home, I would see them opened on the table. And I would realize that Apiwe has been using has been using them. And sometimes I would say, yes, I hope you spoke to her, Lord. But sometimes I would, full, I would be full of envy as I realize that she is doing something that I should be doing. And having those study Bibles, what tells me is that she not only was reading the word, but she was now examining the word and wanting to understand it fully. 
And I think that's what we all need. Now, we, we discover as we come to the rest of the chapter what the book does for them as Ezra reads it for them. And the book does three things for them. And I will be so brief in them because I spend a lot of time on the first point there. The first thing the book does is that it brings sorrow to them. Verses 9. All the people had been weeping as they listened to the word of God, to the word of the law. So immediately we discover that here is the book that did not only speak to their heads, but it went down into their veins, through their blood streams, and to their hearts, and it triggered to them tears. The whole day, as Ezra was reading, we are told that the people were weeping. The book triggered to them tears. It seems as if as they heard and understood the word of God, they began to realize the kind of people God intended them to be. And they realize that they have not been those people. As Ezra read and they heard and understood they began to understand the promises that God made for them and realize how they missed out. And they began weeping. The question for you and I is, has the book or has the word of God lost its power to move you and I? Has the word of God lost its power to move us. Or, putting it the other way around, have our hearts lost the capacity to be moved by God's truth? Have we become numb and comfortable and accustomed to the word of God? Are we too hard to be humbled by God's word? Maybe the prayer that we need to pray is to ask God to keep our hearts soft. The word of God brought them sorrow, but the word of God brought them joy. Again, in verses 9, we are told that Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, and the teacher of the law, and the Levites, who were instructing the people of God, said to them, did you see the list of the spiritual leaders who were present on that day Nehemiah, Ezra, the Levites, these are all spiritual leaders. They are present as the church gathers together. They're not just present, but they are active. They are helping the church through this process to understand what God is doing as he works in their heart. Look at what they're doing. This is what they said to them. This day is the holy day your law, to, your, to the Lord God, your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the word of the law. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. 
And the Levites come, all the people saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. The spiritual leaders are present in the church. They see the gaps. They see what God is doing. They guide the church through what God is doing. They say, yes, it's good to be moved, but don't stay there. Move. Realize that this day is holy to the Lord. This is a day sanctified, set apart. This is the day to rejoice, not to mourn, not to grieve. They help the church to lift up their eyes and see God. True, God's word humbled them. And true in our case, the cross of Christ reminds us all of all of our shortcomings, our failings, and our unworthiness. But scripture tells us that God humbles in order to lift. He never humbles people unless he wants to lift them. Here we have these people who have been judged in exile. But now they are experiencing God's undeserved mercy. The promise that we read about in chapter 1, which said, no matter how far you have gone, if you return to me, I will restore you and I will dwell with you. That promise is now their reality. They living in that promise. The joy and enthusiasm of being God's people and know God and know his security and taste his blessing, it is now their reality as well. And because of that, Nehemiah, Ezra, the Levites, they say to people, celebrate, rejoice, Go and select for yourself the choices of food and sweet drinks. It's a day to celebrate. And as you choose all that kind of great food, remember the poor and the underprivileged as well. It's a day to rejoice. So the book brings sorrow. The book brings joy. But lastly, the book brings obedience. Thank you, Andre. They go back and they realize that when they were traveling through the wilderness, they had to build these temporary houses because there were people on a journey. They have not yet reached their destination. They see that in this chapter, in the book of Ezra, and it amazes them. That the people of God are people on a journey. And that speaks to us today. We are not at home here. We are travelers. We are pilgrims. This world is not our home. And that's one of the marks of the people of God. That a people of faith never stops. They are always traveling traveling towards God, 
traveling in pursuit of God, traveling away from this world, but to be like Christ. That's what we learn here about the people of God. They hunger after God's word. May God give us in our hearts or stir in us a hunger for his words, for his word. And when we have received that hunger, may we allow the word of God to work in us, to break us and to break things that needs to be broken in us. But may it also give us joy as it always does. I follow a devotion that is based on the word. Sometimes I read it or I listen to it to tick the box. But sometimes it brings me to tears as I listen to the word of God being read so beautifully and realize God's vision and God's aim for my life for returning the word. So may it bring us joy, but also may it help us to be submissive to him through obedience. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that uh, you've reminded us who we are this morning. That we are people belonging to you. Not because of what we do, who we are, but because of what you've done through Christ on the cross. Thank you, Jesus, that we belong to you, not because of our performances and because of our works, but because of Christ Jesus, who died for us, who was condemned in our place. In the words of J.I. Pecker, he says, condemned he stood for us. So we thank you, Lord, that we belong to you. And as people belong to you, you have ways that you have set out that we are to follow. Father, we ask you to help us in the week ahead to be seen not only by what we say, but by how we live, that we are people belonging to God. We are different. We are people set apart. By your truth. For your word is truth. So Father we ask you to go before us. And clear the way. To go behind us. And to watch over us. To turn your face towards us. And be gracious to us. For your name's sake we pray. Amen.